Around the world, more than 80 women have accused Peter Nygaard of crimes ranging from rape to sex trafficking. He far exceeds Jeffrey Epstein. He far exceeds Bill Cosby. He exceeds anything that I think our world has seen so far. A pattern of predatory behavior spanning half a century. Nygaard denies it all. But now he faces criminal charges. If this were a poor man, he would have been in jail decades ago. He is hid in plain sight. Evil by Design, available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Brent Bambury. This is Day 6. The White House gift shop is putting out a commemorative coin. The Trump indictment commemorative coin. Free shipping over $125. They are limited edition and the first of a series. Uh, Not the White House, it's a store. The weird and wacky of the White House gift shop. That's coming up on Day 6 today. Fire, ash, and water. More and more of this material makes its way into our water supplies. How forest fires can affect drinking water for years to come. Reddit users rise up. I think it's not just on behalf of Reddit, but really on behalf of the internet. As the site tries to monetize, some mods push back. And Ottawa averts glamour. There was just way too much star power. New owners for the Sins don't include Snoop. All today on Day 6, the Mind on My Money edition. The White House gift shop is putting out a commemorative coin for Donald Trump's indictment. You got to admit it's poor taste, that it's capitalizing upon uh, something without his permission, I'm sure. Uh, It's the wrong thing to do. Have a sense of decency. White House gift shop. Republican Senator Bill Cassidy got kind of steamed on social media earlier this week after learning that the White House gift shop is selling a new coin to commemorate the federal indictment of Donald Trump. Trump surrendered to authorities in Miami on Tuesday. He now faces a 37-count indictment over his handling of classified documents. He is the first president in American history to be charged with a federal crime, hence the commemorative coin and Senator Cassidy's outrage. But the thing is, the White House gift shop has nothing to do with the White House or the Biden administration or the U.S. government at all. It doesn't even have a physical location at the White House or anywhere else. It's just an online store called the White House Gift Shop. It's unclear if Senator Cassidy knew that when he posted that video. But if not, he wouldn't be the first person to be confused by it. Dan Yvonne is with the News Literacy Project. He's a former writer and fact checker with Snopes. And he says the dust up over the Trump federal indictment commemorative coin is just the latest in a long history of misunderstandings over what the White House gift shop actually is. Dan, good morning. Welcome to the program. Uh, Hey, Brent. Thanks for having me. What did you think when you heard about Senator Bill Cassidy's outburst over the new Trump federal indictment commemorative coin? I guess my thought is, uh, hey, are we doing this again? Uh, It's the same thing that people just keep falling for. So yeah, it's a little bit of a repeat. Before we talk about the outrage that's been going on about some of the stuff that comes out of the gift shop, let's just talk about the coin for a second. It's going for about $100. Can you tell us what it looks like? You know, they sell all these sort of uh, commemorative coins and and they all all have kind of the same pattern, you know? It's It's a gold coin and there's a picture in the middle of it. Um, I did not know it was selling for $100. That's, uh, that seems 
pretty expensive for one of these. But it doesn't show images of boxes stored in the bathroom. No, it is. It is not uh, using the uh, the DOJ's images of uh, all the files. No. All right, but when when I scanned through the list of commemorative coins on the site, I was struck by the the, the Trump Putin Helsinki commemorative coin. Uh, it seemed like an odd thing to 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 issue a coin over. What 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 coins seem most collectible to you? You know this this gift shop sells coins for pretty much everything if there's a historical moment they're going to sell a coin for it whether it's like uh supreme court justices being confirmed to the vent bench or state visits uh coronavirus i mean pretty much any historical event there's there's going to be a coin for it for it a, a commemorative coin for the coronavirus is seems like an odd choice but I, I don't see anything commemorating the january 6th insurrection but here they are all in on the indictment how do you think the white house gift shop decides what deserves the commemorative treatment and what doesn't? Well, you know, so I talked to the owner of, a few years ago and he he admitted that he's a Trump supporter, but they definitely sell coins kind of like across the spectrum. Uh, like they had a coin commemorating the police officers on January 6th. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had a coin marking Trump's acquittal from his impeachment. Uh, and now they have this indictment coin. So they, I mean, I guess they kind of pick... Uh, the items that they think are going to sell. Right. So, so this is a business and it's, it's in, it's in business for money. And that's probably why this coin costs a hundred bucks. But do do you know whether uh, Bill Cassidy is aware that the white house gift shop is not affiliated with the white house, that it's not part of the government? You know, I don't know. Uh, This could definitely have been an honest mistake, Um, but he should know because this rumor has gone around before. And also his tweet, uh, kind of goes against what the White House has been doing. They've been really quiet about Trump's indictment. They haven't been making comments. They haven't been celebrating. So even if he knew this, uh, did not know that this item was genuine or not, it feels a bit disingenuous to single out this coin among everything else he knows about how the government has responded to the indictment. Hmm. But but as you said, that there 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 does seem to be some confusion around this White House gift shop business. Uh, and and when the coronavirus commemorative coin came out, you wrote about some of the reaction for it or against it. What happened then? You know, it's interesting because just like this coin now is uh, going viral with people saying that the government's celebrating Trump's indictment. You know, back then it was uh, people blaming the Trump administration for making money off of coronavirus. So it's it's a very similar claim and a very similar uh, reason why people are confused. It just it's targeted at different sides of the aisle. Let's talk about this White House gift shop. It dates back to the 1940s. How did it begin? Yeah, so it started as a uh, as a flower fund. Um, when a when a police officer passed away, uh, you know they would provide flowers to the family, and when a you know a Secret Service agent would, would retire. They provide like little uh, memento gifts. So it really was just the kind of like a, just a fund to, to raise money and gifts for police officers. Um, and it used to be sanctioned by the White House, uh, but that affiliation has, uh, has definitely died down over the years. Are you surprised that no one from the actual White House has tried to uh, reassert or, or put a stop to it at some point over the last 70 years? Well, yeah, I guess he... Uh, Anthony Giannini, the the owner, he has trademarks on the White House gift shop. And I think he was able to get those because uh, in the 1950s, President Truman uh, sanctioned this White House or the White House gift shop. So I think he had some argument with its connection to the White House and was able to get these trademarks. So I don't think there's anything that they can really do anymore. So 
You just have to kind of kind of be aware about it. If you visit the White House, you're not going to go to this gift shop. This gift shop is online only. Uh, so when you go to the White House to get a gift, it's from the White House Historical Association, which is, uh, you know, an official entity and and not related to this gift shop. So a hundred dollars, Dan. I don't know what you plan to do with a hundred bucks, but but could you spare a hundred dollars to buy the new Trump federal indictment commemorative coin? I I don't think I'm gonna buy this one. Uh, if if there's an indictment in Georgia, maybe, or <laughs> if there's a conviction, maybe. But uh, but yeah, I think I'm gonna hold on to my money for the time being. But but that's true, isn't it? Like, this is a commemorative coin for for the indictment, but the indictment's just part of a long legal process. Do you think there'll be a coin when Trump calls his first witness? I mean, how many coins do you think there will be in this process? You know, I bet you they will release a coin whether he's convicted or acquitted, because uh, that's the same thing they did with uh, his impeachments. Right. Um, so I I wouldn't assume that we're going to see many more coins related to this, unless. I have no idea, unless there's a another historic moment that they can capitalize off of. <laughs> Dan Yvonne, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you so much, Brent. It was, it was a pleasure. Dan Yvonne is with the News Literacy Project. Still to come on day six, they could have had Snoop or Ryan Reynolds. Instead, Ottawa picked a logistics billionaire to buy the senators. We picked the most bureaucratic option we had. Six. Here are some other stories we're keeping an eye on this weekend. Answers will take some time, but I can assure you that the RCMP will get the answers. Investigators continue to sort through the wreckage of the devastating highway crash in southwestern Manitoba. Fifteen people were killed Thursday when a bus full of seniors collided with a semi-trailer at an intersection along the Trans-Canada Highway near Carberry, about 160 kilometres west of Winnipeg. Ten more people have been injured. Investigators in Manitoba say they are connecting with the teams who worked on the deadly Humboldt Broncos bus crash for assistance. There is no word yet on how the crash happened. And... It's not just about Policy 713, but I was proud today to stand and support that motion. New Brunswick Cabinet Minister Dorothy Shepard has resigned over the government's handling of LGBTQ student rights. Shepard and five other government members supported a successful opposition motion calling for full consultations on the government's changes to Policy 713, which sets minimum standards for safety and inclusion for LGBTQ students. Among other things, the changes championed by Premier Blaine Higgs make it mandatory to get parental consent before using a student's chosen name and pronoun if the child is under 16. In the legislature, Premier Higgs said gender dysphoria is becoming popular and trendy and that we have a situation that's growing because there's such acceptance that this is fine. Meanwhile, protesters opposed to BC's sexual orientation and gender identity policies in schools disrupted a school board meeting in Surrey Wednesday. The protesters used bullhorns and waved flags. The board cut the meeting short in response. The Ottawa Senators got a new owner this week. For months, bids with high-profile celebrity names attached have jockeyed to come out on top. Snoop Dogg, The Weeknd, Nico Sparks, and Ryan Reynolds have all been in on the action. But in the end, the winning bid is the one led by Michael Andlauer, a billionaire who runs a transportation and logistics company. 
Rick Curry is a comedian who lives in Ottawa. He has some thoughts on the choice. Ottawa's hockey team has been sold to a billionaire who made his money in transportation and logistics. Where was he when we were building the LRT? We have a transportation expert owning the hockey team. Meanwhile, a transportation system was designed by someone who has obviously been hit by a hockey puck. But what a refreshing change will be. From Eugene Melnick, who made his fortune selling pharmaceuticals, to Michael Andlauer, who built his empire delivering pharmaceuticals. I feel a little bad for the other bidders. Nico Sparks and his group of investors, Snoop Dogg, Donovan Bailey, Russell Peters, the friendly giant, Michael Bublé's hairdressers, best friends, nephews, dentist. Thank you for your interest, Mr. Sparks. We've named a downtown street after you. And Ryan Reynolds, whose involvement brought as much excitement as the entire first half of the Senators last season. Thank you, Mr. Reynolds. We promised to name an aluminum foil after you. But in the end, there was just way too much star power in Ottawa. While we retreated to our comfort zone, we picked the most bureaucratic option we had. Hey, maybe he'll convert the corporate boxes into cubicles. Maybe instead of having three periods, we'll have four fiscal quarters. There's a new businessman in charge and the drop ceiling is the limit. Now this is not to say the new ownership team doesn't have its share of star power. We have a partial owner of Farm Boy. I can hear the vendors in the stands now. Produce, deli meats, get your cheese curds here. But no matter what happens in the front office, at least on the ice, let's face it, the future looks bright. They are young and stacked with speed, grit, and a devil-may-care attitude, and that's just the Zamboni driver. The team is even better. You have acquired a jewel, Mr. Anlauer. Good luck to you. I know you'll be the best Ottawa Senators owner that a lifetime Montreal Canadiens fan could ever be. Rick Curry is a comedian in Ottawa. Still to come here on Day 6, users of the powerful social media platform revolt against the owners. What's going on at Reddit? Now they're trying to rewrite these rules without any input. There are currently 431 wildfires burning, 208 of which are determined to be out of control. 4.7 million hectares of forest have been burned. This now qualifies, unfortunately, as Canada's worst wildfire season of the 21st century. That's Canada's Emergency Preparedness Minister Bill Blair giving a bleak wildfires update earlier this week. Since then, there's been some rain and some relief from the fires and the smoke, especially in Ontario, Quebec and eastern Canada. The situation in Alberta and B.C. remains extremely volatile. The smoky haze that enveloped large swaths of North America is still lingering. And people who work in this field say the effects of this summer's brutal season will be felt for a long time to come. Monica Imelko is a professor in the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering at the University of Waterloo. Her main area of research is how wildfires can create long-term issues for water supplies. In 2016, when a wildfire devastated Fort McMurray, Alberta, Emelko and her colleagues began helping the city deal with the challenges facing the municipal water treatment plant. Monica Emelko, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Good morning. Thanks for having me. There was rainfall this past week in parts of Ontario and Quebec. and Before that, it was extremely dry and extremely hot. But there was a lot of fire and a lot of smoke. 
So was the ring good news or is it more complicated than that? It's uh, definitely good news with respect to managing the fires, but then the after effects, it might not be such good news. So why is that? What happens in the after effects? Well, with fires, there's so much particulate material that's released either into the air or on the landscape. It makes its way, as we all know, into our lungs, but it also makes its way into our water supplies through a variety of routes. And that material can really have some problematic long-term effects on water, especially for uh, the provision of safe drinking water. But we've always had wildfires, so that particulate would at some time find its way into the supply. It's true that the, the fires we're seeing now are more severe and more intense than before, but what is the new risk then that these intense fires pose to the water supply? Wildfire is natural, but the issue is the fires that we're having now are bigger. We're having more big fires and they're releasing more material all at once. More and more of this material makes its way into our water supplies. And what that means is not that it's contaminating our water supply necessarily from a, the perspective of there's some new contaminant and we're going to get sick from it, mm -hmm. but rather it makes the water much more difficult to treat. And if the water is difficult to treat, we might not always have as much of it as we want at the quality that we want and need and on demand. Is there not some contaminant in what goes into the water after a large fire, if something from the smoke or elevated levels of mercury, perhaps? Absolutely. There are some contaminants like mercury, or we might have heard of polycyclic aromatic aromatic hydrocarbons, always hard to get that word out. But when we when we hear about barbecuing, for example, we, we hear about these materials that are unhealthy for us. Mm -hmm. But the reality is when it comes to drinking water, unless you're drinking water straight out of the lake or the river, we have water treatment plants and water treatment plants are really good at removing most contaminants you know, we can make safe water on the space station. Mm -hmm. So it's not so much the contaminants, it's when water quality changes quickly. And when that happens, that's when we need to see much more effective monitoring of the system. Are there resources in place to do that? You know, there used to be. Um, but increasingly, unfortunately, we have this expectation in communities that technology will do its thing and work for us. And we uh, sometimes fail to recognize that really with these advanced technologies that we rely on for the provision of safe water, usually there's a whole crew of operators behind the scenes working to make sure that that is happening well. But if you don't provide them with any insight as to what's coming down the pipeline or what's coming down the river, literally, that upstream monitoring, you're kind of asking them to do things in the blind. Let's talk about a community that went through this because you spent time in Fort McMurray, Alberta, and you were there after the devastating wildfire of 2016. What do you remember most about the challenges the people in charge of the water supply were facing? To be very honest, I remember first being shocked and really transformed for my, the rest of my life by being there because it was a horrific scene. Once you've been in a fire scene, and I was there before people returned because uh, we wanted to make sure the water supply was safe. Mm -hmm. And so I can tell you that all those people were living in the water treatment plant, working hard to make sure that people could return to their homes and at least have safe water to drink. But it was very challenging for them for a number of reasons um, because of the impact of the fire. And it continues to be challenging. We've seen images of the devastation of Fort McMurray, certainly in, in terms of real estate. But this is how you described the Athabasca River at the time. You said, you've got a river the color of chocolate milk. And these small tributaries during certain events, a good rain, for example, look like hot fudge. Yes. Does all of that stuff go into the water supply? At one point, 
much of this material does make its way into the water supply in one way or another. And even in a system as big as the Athabasca River watershed, we're talking about an area that's over 100,000 square kilometers. Many people thought, you know, again, that using that chocolate milk analogy, really, will we even see an effect of the fire? But the reality is that we do. And not only did we see it, we continue to see it. And so the answer is yes. If you think about our Canadian landscape, up in Fort McMurray, it's a pretty flat landscape, except for the river that is kind of cut into the landscape or in size. So it's kind of mm -hmm. like a V. Mm -hmm. And that material literally oozes, it fills up like a sponge, and then it oozes into the river and makes its way, especially when there's this connection, when that hot fudge sauce is really rolling off the landscape, if we stick with that analogy, it makes its way into the water treatment plant. And year after year, that fire was in 2016, year after year, it's caused more variable water, which means operators are chasing to get their chemical dosing correct. Mm -hmm. You have to be really vigilant and it costs a lot more. And on top of that, there are growing and evolving problems in that system that will probably have even greater costs for that community. And those growing and evolving problems, they're also a result of the fire? Absolutely. And, you know, it's, where are we now in 2023? And this is one of the things about wildfire that many people don't realize is that these impacts can be very long term. And it's not kind of like it's the water looks one way one day and then for the rest of the time, you know, thereafter it looks like something else. Mm -hmm. It's more, we call it more flashy, but it really varies more and the extremes are greater, right? We hear that a lot with climate change. Everything extreme is more extreme. At one point, you get past a tipping point, right. and that's happened in Fort Mac. And so we now have a new ecosystem evolving in and around the water treatment plant. And that ecosystem has to be understood and managed, in that. so there's a, a additional expense there. Absolutely. That ecosystem, in fact, you know, that plant was built in the early 1980s. I think it was 1983, around that time. And they've never seen an algae bloom until the year after the fire. And I can tell you that they have had one every year since the fire. And what are the threats of an algae bloom? Algae blooms are especially concerning. People might have heard about algae blooms recently, you know, globally. But certainly we've heard stories recently out of Nova Scotia, for example. And algae are problematic because they can clog infrastructure. And that's bad enough. But there are increasingly more algae blooms and more appropriately called cyanobacterial blooms where there is the potential to, for these organisms to form toxins. And toxins are not maybe they can make you sick contaminants. They, are, they can make you sick contaminants if they pass through the water. Do these algae blooms present an immediate threat to people drinking the drinking water in Fort McMurray? Drinking water providers do not distribute water unless it meets the criteria for health and safety that are common across the country. Mm -hmm. So not only are the operators in Fort McMurray working harder, they're doing a better job. And so they continue to provide safe water and those potential toxins have not been found in Fort McMurray, although we know they have the potential to be produced. But at present, the water in Fort McMurray is completely safe. And now we're seeing intensifying wildfires in parts of the country that, that aren't used to experiencing them. So what do you believe towns and cities should be doing now to protect the water supply in the face of these new threats? There's a need to plan proactively for communication between various arms of local, uh, municipal, provincial and federal government so that the various ministries 
communicate and know when problems are are potentially about to be faced in the near future. Mm -hmm. Perhaps most importantly, we need to invest in monitoring. How can we deal with a problem if we don't know that it's coming? How do we know if there's an impact of a fire or extreme precipitation if we don't have the data from our system to tell us that there is a change? When I started working in this area uh, back in 2004, we couldn't even get funding for this issue. Thankfully, we were able to get some from the government of Alberta. But people kept saying, oh, this is a one-off issue. Fire? That's not a, a broader issue that Canadians need to be worried about. And boy, have things changed in a short period of time. We have to be vigilant. We have to uh, be adaptive. And that means not being handcuffed by outdated regulatory frameworks that no longer serve us. Monica Melko, thank you very much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. Monica Emelko is a professor at the University of Waterloo's Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering. She's also Canada Research Chair in Water Science, Technology and Policy. More than 6,000 communities on the popular social networking forum Reddit have gone dark as moderators protest the company's decision to charge some third-party apps for the use of Reddit data. If you tried going on a Reddit subgroup this week, there's a good chance you weren't able to view what you were looking for. Thousands of communities on the platform shut down access to their content this week to protest Reddit's decision to start charging for access to its API. That's the back-end data and tools that make the platform run. And on Reddit, that's particularly important. For years, Reddit didn't have its own mobile app. So third-party developers build apps like Reddit is Fun to allow users to browse on their phones. Even though Reddit now has its own mobile app, many users find the third-party apps are better and more efficient. Recently, Reddit said, you know what? We should start charging those third-party app developers for access to our data. Some app developers say they'd have to pay as much as $20 million a year under Reddit's new pricing. And at that rate, a lot of those third parties said they'd be shutting down. Takara Small is a Canadian tech reporter and entrepreneur. She says Reddit's move is part of a growing trend towards a more expensive internet. Takara, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thousands of Reddit users were blacked out this week. Were you surprised to see such a coordinated protest? I was not. If anything, uh, I was expecting it. This is very much how the Reddit community has reacted to news, um, to updates, to events that they do not agree with at all. So they're taking a stand. What, what does this say about the singular nature of the Reddit communities when you compare it to other social media? I mean, Reddit is such a special place. It is so unique. And I know individuals who aren't familiar with the forum, with the website are thinking, okay, how is it any different? But Reddit is made up of all of these different communities that have very specific interests. But they come together when they want to advocate for a particular cause or when they want change. And that in itself is so interesting because you would really have a hard time finding users from different parts of the world, different languages, different interests on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, coming together to ask a platform to change how they work or operate. It's mm. it's really special. And, and the moderators have some sense of ownership over, over the various forums. So what other issues have they coalesced around in the past? 
Well, I think one of the biggest issues was in 2020, they came together to protest hate speech for more support when it came to fighting back against racism. And another one, which maybe isn't too well known in North America, which is in 2021, when they advocated against hiring a particular executive. So again, these are social media users who are saying, we don't want Reddit to hire a former politician to be part of the family and oversee how the platform operates. And it, they were successful. They ended up not onboarding and not moving forward with this this individual. They have so much power. Huh. And, and right now, they're, they're flexing because they don't want Reddit to raise the price of its API. But why does Reddit seem to think that now is the time? I mean, flexing is like, I think the most appropriate word here. Um, <laughs> I can't think of anything better. Um, Right now, they're, they're really pushing back against these, this new type of pricing that Reddit hopes to institute. And I think it's not just on behalf of Reddit, but really on behalf of the internet. Because what Reddit mm. is doing, what they're trying to monetize and get away with, could really change how the internet fundamentally works. And, and this is a big deal. So, so let's dig down a little bit on, on the technical side of this, because it's about the API. And APIs are the interface that allows third-party apps to communicate with Reddit's data, which is extremely important and valuable. Yes. But, but how important are those third-party apps for Reddit users? Because the use of those apps may be restricted because of the new fees. Yes. And you uh, you already laid it out, but APIs stand for Application Programming Interface. And pretty much what they do is they allow apps to talk to one another and share information. But this is really important because yes, Reddit users can use the website to engage with content, to talk, to comment, to share. But it's really these third-party apps that hold a very special place in users' hearts because it allows moderators to access content, to review content, but it also allows individuals to engage save bookmark mm-hmm. multiple threads different you know spaces all at once and anyone who's been on reddit knows that it isn't always the most visually appealing right. and easy to navigate these yeah. apis and these third-party apps make that possible okay and so what's going on that reddit thinks that now is the time to raise the price i mean i feel like you know this is where you would add that money dollar sign audio this would be the perfect (laughs) time it just comes down to money so there is a rumor that the company is hoping to go public soon and they want to make sure that they can showcase um as much bang for the buck the buck as they can the other is you know we're in a very interesting space when it comes to tax so twitter recently decided to start charging as well for api access and the tech space in general has seen a lot of peaks and you know highs and lows over the last year and a bit. And they're not bringing in as much investment, as, as much VC funds as they once did. So they're thinking, you know what? This is a really valuable commodity that mm-hmm. we have. Mm-hmm. There are millions of users around the world. And we're going to start charging money for it in order to at least like recoup some of our costs. There are, you know, a lot of companies, a lot of tools, because AI is hot right now, right. that are mining these spaces in order to train data. So, you know, these free spaces are making some people a lot of money. And instead of, you know, acknowledging that and trying to formulate a response, they just decided to screw everyone over, both profit and nonprofit, 
and start charging. Do you, do you think that trend, I mean, it's happened on Twitter and, and now it's happening yeah. with Reddit, the trend of, of, of rising API prices will continue across other social media and elsewhere on the internet. And what is the implication if it does? I would not be surprised if we see this happen on other platforms. Facebook, for instance, they are very much beloved for the free API access that they they provide to a lot of third-party apps, to a lot of companies, et cetera. It's been a goldmine for many companies. Um, so if this does become widespread, what I fear will happen is the internet will become less free, less accessible. And the idea that the internet can be a place where anyone anywhere, not just North America, can fundamentally understand the world around them for free will become a thing of the past. Like we are really on on the verge of a new world and a new internet. And I know that sounds dramatic, but this is, that's really what we're looking at. So the moderators on Reddit who are holding the fort right mm. now, how do you think they're being viewed by the managers inside the company? What, what do you think they think huh. about this protest? How, how concerned would they be at this point? I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of, you know, hand wringing. I'm sure there's a lot of midnight calls a lot of stress because if they're going public, this doesn't really reassure investors. I think moderators may be looked upon poorly by Reddit executives, but they are the backbone for the company. Like Mm -hmm. they are the ones who are taking on this unpaid labor and it is unpaid. And that's why these people feel like they have an ownership because people have to remember social media, there's this unspoken rule. They get our labor, they get our data, which is so incredibly important. They can sell us ads. And in return, it's supposed to be open and free. Now they're trying to rewrite these rules without any input. I mean, I'm surprised they didn't think there would be more pushback. Meanwhile, if you want to get into one of these forums, they're a closed book until something happens, right? It is. They're not allowing new members. And this is hurting their bottom line at the same time, too. I mean, they need to show that they have the numbers to back up their IPO. And it's, you know, people are not only not engaging with posts, but new members aren't able to sign up. It's a bad look all all around. Takara Small, thank you very much for coming on. My pleasure. Takara Small is a tech reporter and entrepreneur. Still to come on day six, hateful rhetoric and threats of violence darken the celebration of this year's pride. Trans activist Faye Johnstone says she's not backing down. It sets the stage for them to do it to other groups, too. The climate is changing. So are we. I'm Laura Lynch, and I host What on Earth? That's CBC's Climate Solutions podcast. Twice a week, we take you around the world to find the people who are trying to build a better future for all of us. We explore Indigenous science, new technologies. We talk openly about mental health and climate anxiety. We also take your smart questions all the time. Come find What on Earth wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Brent Bambury. You're listening to Day 6 from CBC Radio. We're on public radio stations across the United States. You can listen on demand with the CBC Listen app. And we're available wherever you get your podcasts and at cbc.ca slash day6. Now, if you were randomly shouting out places where public displays of affection were acceptable, you probably wouldn't shout, Victorian England, would you? No, no, I suppose I wouldn't. Because from our 21st century vantage point, Victorian England has a reputation for being repressed, buttoned up, you know, stuffy, constrained, 
and bound to an endless list of social rules. Was this the time where it's like, you can't have table legs that are too shapely because it might arouse a man? Was uh, that this time? Right. This is, this is where the next term comes in. Shame. But wait. That may reflect how Victorians acted in public. Beneath all that etiquette and socially mandated shame, they were just as messy and human as we are today. Queen Victoria herself was very explicit in her diaries about how hot Albert was and all sorts of other things. Yes, she was. But she was the queen. What about everyone else? To avoid Victorian censorship and scrutiny, people found a way to conduct their private business in a very public space, the front page of the newspapers. They would submit personal ads, often in code, on any topic they wished. And there were a lot of things the Victorians wished to talk about. Missing persons, missed connections, detective work, shady dealings, and forbidden love. They were all fair game in those ads, which came to be known as the agony columns. All you needed was a huge crush, a brain, and enough money to pay the fee. Dr. Nathalie Cook is an English professor and associate dean at the McGill Library. She was the lead researcher on a recent project called Ciphers of the Times about Victorian agony columns. Mysteriously missing since Thursday, October 1st, when he left England en route for the continent. An English nobleman, 64 years of age, but looks younger, tall and aristocratic appearance, sallow complexion, gray whiskers and mustache, good teeth, the two front ones apart. Supposed to have departed in the company with a French lady, about 28 years of age. Information to Mr. Polacki, private inquiry office, 13 Paddington Green. Most people probably haven't heard about agony ads, but they give us an opening to a fascinating world. They were first called agony columns, I think, as a kind of critique, you know, oh, the agonies. And it referred to the personal columns in the Times of London. But they actually were telling stories that were quite tragic. And you'd see the, the pleas from individuals losing their, their child or losing their dog, trying to find a missing person. And so it, it was a kind of a plea of agony in a society where there was such coded communication that you probably wouldn't hear that on a daily basis. That was really exciting. It was rather like reading, um, one commentator said, reading a romance in four little lines. The agony ads in the personal columns are particularly interesting because of clandestine communities wanting to communicate. For example, before um, homosexuality was legalized, there was an interesting way of communicating through coded agony ads. And so all of those kinds of communications were actually circumscribed by the law and legal disciplines. So that, that intrigued us. Why would you bother to communicate through the newspaper instead of just sending a, a letter through the mail? The letters in the mail were actually remarkably efficient in Britain at the moment. But there were a lot of people who would see that letter. So they'd see who it was addressed to. And, you know, it might be a servant who's taking it to the post. It might be a family member who sees that you've written that letter. It might also be a family member who sees that there's a response coming. And so it's not actually very private. So if you had agreed on a code with your lover, let's say, or even your partner in crime, 
or potentially somebody with whom you have a, a liaison that's not legal at that particular moment in time. As long as you've agreed on the same code and that other person can decode your coded message, then in actual fact it is quite private. It's an encrypted message. The only problem is that there's some very bright people out there who are quite intrigued with breaking those codes. And so there are a couple of stories where people intervene and they actually say in the code, the code's broken, you know, the jig is up. So there's a kind of a wireistic exercise that's going on. There's also this kind of puzzle where the real life precursors of somebody like Sherlock Holmes were enjoying themselves immensely. I think the stereotypical sense of Victorian Britons is that they were very well behaved. There was a certain decorum. But when you look at these ads, they are remarkably, candidly personal. It's as though you're peeping in through somebody's window and not even a window of the living room. What we're reading is that this isn't really so new. We were doing this during the COVID lockdowns. And so there was a real sense of echoing taking place as we were reading these ads. And we were also hearing from people talking about feeling trapped, isolated, alienated from one another. And we weren't hearing the same words in the agony ads, but we were certainly reading the same emotions. That sense of human need was very much laid bare. Dr. Nathalie Cook is an English professor and associate dean at the McGill Library. This month, I celebrated my day 365 of womanhood, and Bud Light sent me possibly the best gift ever, a can with my face on it. That is the now infamous video of actress Dylan Mulvaney showing the world a can of Bud Light with her face on it. Dylan is also a social media personality. She is transgender. And last March, Bud Light put her image on a can of beer to celebrate the first anniversary of her transition. After that, Dylan was subjected to a barrage of hateful comments and threats, and Bud Light is the subject of a still ongoing boycott. What I'm struggling to understand is the need to dehumanize and to be cruel. I just, I don't think that's right. You know, dehumanization has never fixed anything in history, ever. And I was nervous that you were going to start believing those things that they were saying about me, since it is so loud. There is a growing backlash against trans people in particular and the whole LGBTQ community in general. Hundreds of anti-trans bills have been tabled in the U.S. this year, and it's only June. Across Canada, there has been a rise in hateful protests, vandalism, and threats. Faye Johnstone is the executive director and co-owner of the consulting firm Wisdom to Action. She is transgender. This spring, Faye was featured on Hershey Bars commemorating International Women's Day. That led to online harassment and a call to boycott Hershey. Faye Johnstone, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me on today. It's Pride Month, and I know that Pride was born as a protest, but really for the last decade or so, it's been a big celebration and quite a big party. But this year is different. In light of the hatred that we've seen directed at the LGBTQ plus community, how does it feel this year to be trans during Pride? You know, Pride is meant to be a time of celebration, of coming together, reflecting on how far we've come uh, and recognizing how far we still have to go. Uh, But this year hits different. You know, we're seeing the surging hate 
and attacks on the rights and humanity of trans and queer people. So this year, I'm, I'm feeling scared this Pride season. I'm feeling worried about the future and uh, not as optimistic as, as I would have been in years past. Tell me a bit about the fear. What are you afraid of? Is it, is it a fear of physical confrontation? What, what is it that's making you not feel safe? I think there's layers to it. You know, on, on a personal level, it's, it's fear that this like vitriol about trans and queer people is going to take hold and galvanize more harassment uh, and, and hatred in, uh, for trans and gender diverse people like me in public space. Uh, but it's equally about a shifting political and social landscape where the rights that we fought, the breathing room we've carved out for queer and trans people to be ourselves is being shortened, is being restricted, as we're seeing like in New Brunswick, where uh, they've got new policies that deny the authenticity and humanity of trans kids in New Brunswick classrooms. And how recent do you think this is? How, how quickly did this happen? Uh, I would say we've we've been warning in queer and trans communities since 2017, 2018. Uh, that coincides with a data from StatsCan that shows increases in hate-motivated crimes towards our communities ever since 2018. But it also shows that it's escalating quickly with a 64% increase from 2020 to 2021 alone. So let's talk about some of the things that, that you've experienced, if if you're okay with that, because you, your face was put on a Hershey chocolate bar as part of their promotion, which is really cool. But what happened after the chocolate bars hit the store? What was the fallout? You know, it was an honor to be on these chocolate bars and alongside four other, uh, you know, young change making women uh, from across Canada. But uh, I almost, you know, within 72 hours of me posting about this chocolate bar and this campaign on Twitter, I had the entire apparatus of the North American far right uh, stomping on me online. Um, you know, within a span of a few days, there were hundreds of articles around the world. I had Tucker Carlson, Matt Walsh, Ben Shapiro and others saying horrible things about me and unleashing a tsunami of hate in my mentions, in my direct messages and in my inbox, uh, threats of violence, encouragement to suicide, horrible slurs, and so much more. The people that you mentioned that, that publicly went after you, what's in it for them? Why do they want to build this constituency of people who want to come out against people like you? You know, on one side, I think they make money off of it. You know, uh, Daily Wire used my inclusion in the Hershey's Canada campaign to launch their own a chocolate bar that they sold hundreds of thousands of to their far right stakeholders in days. So there is a definitely a financial rationale here. Mm -hmm. But I think the deeper piece is trying to push an agenda of regression, uh, an agenda where, you know, we have greater hostility towards trans people, towards gender nonconformity, people who don't easily fall into the category of man and woman, just like we saw in the 70s. Hershey stuck with this campaign and they they supported you, but other corporations have backed down in the face of anti-LGBTQ protests recently. How does it feel to you? What does it say to you when a company gives in to that sentiment and to that threat? I was really thankful that Hershey's uh, stood by me and supported me and, and helped prioritize my safety through uh, my experiences. But it is scary to see corporations regressing or becoming more hesitant to support our communities. We're seeing, you know, we've always talked about how it's never enough for a corporation to throw a pride logo or a rainbow version of their logo 
up on their social media platforms. Right. Uh, but now we're seeing real hesitance at a time where queer and trans communities need those who call themselves our allies to be standing behind us more than ever. So when some of the largest names in right-wing media went after you, that all was amplified by social media. How much do you blame social media for the current landscape? You know, I think social media makes it easier to dehumanize people. It opens up through anonymity and the distance created by by our, one screen to another. But I think that online rhetoric uh, translates directly into emboldened bigotry uh, in our own communities. It tells a bigot that, you know, if they're so used to, to talking about trans people in a horrible way online, or they see that normalized online, they're so much likely to throw slurs or hate at a trans person uh, who's just living their life, going to their grocery store or hanging out in public spaces. I'm hearing people say that part of the backlash against LGBTQ people has to do with the gains that were made, particularly around the marriage question. But with the trans community, they're looking at a smaller demographic. And because of that, it's easier to demonize them. Do you believe that's true? Absolutely. Uh, And I also don't think we can separate what's happening now, the target that's painted on the backs of trans people from longstanding homophobia. Uh, It's no coincidence that the tactics and rhetoric targeting trans people right now is eerily similar to rhetoric that described gay people in the 70s, equating us with child abusers, threats to children, allegations are trying to recruit or convert people. All of that is, is repackaged homophobia. And they're recognizing now that they can zero in on trans people because indeed there's both less of us unless people know a trans person in their personal life. So if they can create a wedge here, it sets the stage for them to do it to other groups too, and creates a narrative where gender and sexual diversity is perceived as dangerous or a threat or insidious. But this has been a successful movement, particularly in the United States, where there have been hundreds of anti-trans bills introduced by legislatures. You mentioned what's happened in New Brunswick. Do you see any other signs that that kind of political backlash with actual legislation aimed at trans people could happen here as well? Absolutely. Like, I, I really hope that we don't follow the path of the U.S., but we often mirror them with a few years of delay. And so what's happening in New Brunswick is the first time in recent memory where government is regressing and acquiescing to anti-trans rhetoric. Uh, and, you know, just a few weeks ago, we saw the People's Party of Canada commit to repealing trans rights legislation and the conversion therapy ban. It was just a few years ago that almost half the Conservative Party caucus voted against banning conversion therapy. Mm. And so I I hope that we're not there and that we're not going to get there. But it actually does scare me when I see the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada using rhetoric about anti-wokeness, because to me, that is a dog whistle, uh, both in regards to a repealing anti-racism initiatives, but also uh, rolling back on trans and queer rights. If you were talking to someone, let's imagine there's someone listening right now who's thinking about coming out as trans and perhaps doing it during Pride Month, but they're worried about what they're seeing and what they're hearing. What, what would you tell them? I would say 
and you know, I'm thinking back to my own experiences, and it's it's a, it's a brave decision to come out in any context. But uh, and 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 there will be a price that we pay, and that is is horrible to recognize or acknowledge. Uh, but I love the trans person that I am today. I am so much happier, healthier, and more honest with myself and with everyone else about who I am today. And even when the world is hard, your community will always have your back, your family, your allies. We will come and support you through and through. Come out of that closet if you're ready to do it, and you will be welcomed by our community with open arms. Happy Pride, Faye. Thanks for talking to us. Happy Pride. Thanks so much for having me. Faye Johnstone is the executive director and co-owner of Wisdom to Action. from the headlines. And here we go. This is Riff from the Headlines, our weekly quiz. Three riffs linked by one story in the news. If you guess the story that links the riffs, you could win a day six tote bag. First, here's a recap. This is last week's clue. And Benny Goodman, and there won't be a shortage of love. Janelle Monet with Pink, and Aqua with Barbie Girl, and Alana Ray of Pemberton, BC, guessed the headline that we're looking for. Production of the upcoming Barbie movie contributes to a global shortage of pink paint. Congratulations, Alana. A day six tote bag is on its way to you soon. Now, here's this week's clue I am a robot. Naked and alone. Sent from the future to build a new home. And we're looking for the story that connects those riffs. Email us your answer. Put riff from the headlines in the subject and send it to day6 at cbc.ca. Please include your mailing address because one right answer will be picked at random. The prize is a day6 tote bag. You can always hear the clues again anytime at cbc.ca slash day6. from the headlines. And that's our show for this week. Day 6 was produced by Lori Allen, Mickey Edwards, Pedro Sanchez, and Yamri Tesfutadesa. Our digital producer is Paul Hantiuk. Our senior producer is Gord Westmacott. And I'm Brent Bambury. It's four days to the longest day of the year. One day to Father's Day. And seven days till we meet again on Day 6. Produce. 
deli meats. Get your cheese curds here. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.